Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Leo Hanian, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Dangerous and Uninformed Shift to Socialism in the United States. And it was recorded on August 9th, 2019. So as a, as a backdrop, um, I'd like to just take a moment and say this is really unusual that socialism is creating so much interest in, in the U.S. Because the historical record is clear. Free markets, free enterprise economy benefit everyone. And there's no better way to see that than really looking at the history of our world in the last 30 or 40 years. Since the 1980s, there's been a shift around the world to either free or relatively freer markets in countries. And this has lifted over a billion people out of poverty, including countries such as China, the countries of the former Soviet Union, and India. And those, that collection right there is about two billion people. And between 1990 and 2010, the number of people living uh, in extreme poverty has fallen by half. So there's really no debate about the importance and the causal effect of free markets on economic prosperity and really benefiting, benefiting people. Um, and just to kind of juxtapose how important and how distinct the two economic systems are, I'm going to spend a moment and talk about China between 1959 and 1980 and then China after 1980. And I'm going to begin with one of the most devastating mistakes that I know that comes out of a command economy. Um, in the late 50s and early 60s, China suffered a famine in which 36 million people died. And these 36 million deaths could have been prevented. They were caused entirely by a central planning mistake, which was Mao's Great Leap Forward. So at that time, Mao's vision for China was become an industrial superpower. And what Mao did, again, socialism is command control, Mao moved millions of farmers away from agricultural regions and into factories. And what happened, as always happens in a command control society, is resource allocation gets pushed out of whack. So China built, produced way too much steel and produced not nearly enough food, leading to those 36 million deaths. Now, not much happened in the 20 years after that. It was still a command control economy. In 1980, China, China's per capita GDP was just $600 per year uh, in today's dollars. So the average Chinese person in 1980 was living on the equivalent of 600 of, our, uh, of today's dollars. But now what happened after 1980? Well, Chinese people became so fed up of being poor is that they started implementing market-based reforms themselves. They started trading them on themselves. The government saw that this worked, and they implemented economic reforms. Today, per capita GDP in China is $8,800. That's about a 15-fold increase over where they were in 1980. And the poverty rate in China has fallen from 60% to 10%. So I think that example illustrates really clearly just how important uh, the economic system a country adopts is and what remarkable effects free markets can have. And by the 1990s, everybody knew this. Virtually every policymaker understood 
the importance of free markets. And what I've done here is I've, I've put a couple of quotes from a previous State of the Union message. And let me read those to you. Our welfare system undermines family and work instead of supporting them. I challenge every state in the union to give parents the right to choose any public school for their children. So here's a State of the Union address talking about welfare reform that incentivizes work and supports families, and essentially school voucher program. Anybody uh, want to take a guess at who that president was? That was, that was Bill Clinton in 1996. And the last quote I put down there is, the era of big government is over. So this was a Democratic president. Um, and these were mainstream economic and political thoughts at that, at that time. But now what happened? Now we have the Democratic Party really looking not at all like any of these positions. Really nothing whatsoever like those positions. Um, most Democratic presidential candidates have socialist agendas or have adv advocated or proposed socialist policies. Um, the four congressional Democrats in the House that received the most media attention, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and three others, known as the, the squad, um, are very unabashedly socialist. Um, what's coming out of those presidential candidates and several in the House are you know, a return to what was going on in places like China and the Soviet Union, command control policies on a variety of areas in the economy ranging from health, the environment, labor markets and trade. And this is just really puzzling because, as I mentioned, the historical record is clear. Look at China, look at India, look at Poland, look at Belarus. Look at any of these countries, and they are just so much better off today. Um, and how do these ideas gain traction during a time when we're having such a remarkably good economy? Our unemployment rate's the lowest it has been in 50 years. Our productivity growth, which is the main driver of long-run living standards and which never gets discussed in the media, was 0.5% per year growth during President Obama's two terms, and is now at 2% per year, which is the historical standard we've always enjoyed. Um, so I'm going to spend the next few minutes kind of talk, talking about those ideas. Well, if socialism was just an economic idea, in my opinion, I don't think it would have gained much traction. But today's socialism really has adopted on a wide scale uh, cultural issues, cultural issues and social issues. So you probably see all the time these three terms, equity, diversity, and social justice. Well, old school socialism was about equity. Everybody gets the same outcome. That's when socialism was just an economic system. Today, culture is now part of socialism, and that's where the diversity and social justice terms come into play. So when people talk about socialist agendas, it's not just about economics. It's as much and oftentimes more about things such as race and gender, uh, LGBTQ, 
and the associated issue of identity politics, uh, immigration. These are now all part and parcel of today's socialism. And the support for what I'll call this much broader based socialism has just increased enormously since 2016, and in particular since the 2016 elections. And I view this somewhat as a cultural backlash against, against President Trump. Now, that's one reason I think that socialism is creating interest within the Democratic Party. Um, another reason that there's just been a fundamental change in the Democratic Party about what the vision of that party is for our country over a longer period of time. So I'm going to give you some statistics. Gallup has been tracking uh, political perspectives among registered, uh, registered voters in, in Democratic and Republican parties for a long, long time. And so I'm going to give you some statistics from 1994, 25 years ago, and then, and then those from today. So in 1994, uh, about one in four registered Democrats identified themselves as politically liberal. And politically liberal in 1994 probably meant something different, probably much more conservative than politically liberal means today. But in any case, about one out of four were identified as politically liberal. Half viewed themselves as being politically moderate, and 25% viewed themselves as being conservative. So three out of four were either conservative or moderate. And you see that exactly in President Clinton's 1996 State of the Union speech, where he was talking about school vouchers, welfare reform, limited government. Um, now today, 55% of Democrats identify as being, as being liberal. And again, I think liberal today means something very different than it did in 1994. And just 7% identify themselves as being conservative. So there's been this long-run shift within the Democratic Party about becoming more politically liberal. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, I don't think socialism would have been nearly as successful in capturing people's attention as it has been without it broadening out to cultural and social issues. So I'm going to give you some statistics um, about how socialism has encompassed pop culture and really exploits the medium. And these statistics are going to be on how frequently particular terms have appeared in the New York Times between 2010 and 2018. Now, the first term is politically correct. The frequency of that term appearing in the New York Times has declined by 75% since 2010. So politically correct, some people think that's a derogatory term about silly ideas that are politically motivated. Well, I think the reason it's declined so much because it's just because that's a term that's just much less acceptable for the New York Times readership. Now, let's take a look at some terms that have increased in usage in the media. Diversity and inclusion. Well, that has appeared 15,000 times uh, compared to 1,000 times. Social justice, 800 times versus 180 times. Unconscious bias. Now, if you don't know what this is, I wish I were, I wish I were you. Sadly, I know what it is. This is the idea that you're biased, but you just don't know it. Okay? I'm not kidding. 
um, 6,000 times versus 50. So you, so you look at this, you look at, uh, at the frequency of usage of these terms, and uh, these identity politic terms are just skyrocketing in usage. And those who are advocating socialist policies have really been very strategically very successful in latching onto this. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the sense in which today's emphasis on socialist policies is really uninformed. And I'll talk a, a, a bit more about how dangerous it is. So Bernie Sanders, you're running for president for the second time. Um, Ocasio-Cortez, who I'll refer to as AOC, and many others, when they advance policy ideas, they say, well, hey, you know, the policies I'm talking about are virtually identical to those in Sweden and Denmark and other northern European countries. And, look, and, and those countries seem to be very successful, aren't they? And so Sanders has been quoted as saying, we can learn much from socialist countries like Denmark and Sweden. And AOC has, uh, has made statements such as, my policies resemble Sweden's. Well, they just aren't informed about the policy choices within those countries. And in fact, the policies they're thinking of haven't been in place in those countries for about 25 years. And in fact, within the Democratic Party, those statements are being made so frequently that, not, that earlier this year, the Danish Prime Minister said at one meeting where there was reference made to Denmark being a socialist country, he said off the cuff, I will make one thing clear, Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is very much a free market economy. Now, I think Sanders and AOC would backpedal from Swedish policy about as fast as they could if they actually knew what those policies were. Here are some of the policies that you see in Sweden and Denmark. Well, as many of you know, the flat tax was born at Hoover a number of years ago by Alvin Babushka and Bob Hall. Sweden, Denmark, and those other northern European countries have a nearly flat personal tax schedule, which makes the tax, all other things equal, less distortionary on economic activity. Now, that would be anathema to Sanders and AOC. They've gone on record as wanting to tax incomes at the top of 70% to 80%. School vouchers and for-profit schools. Well, Sanders, AOC, virtually every other candidate running for Democratic president, presidential uh, candidate has is really tied in with teachers' unions at the national level and also at the state and local level. Teachers' unions fight school vouchers and charter schools just tooth and nail. Um, the idea of for-profit K through 12 schools, you know, wouldn't even get off the ground in the United States. But they exist and they are doing particularly well in Sweden and Denmark. Um, Sanders, AOC, others, have recommended substantial increases in economic regulation. There's very little business regulation in Sweden and Denmark. And the reason is these are really small countries. In order for them to be competitive in an increasingly globally competitive world, they simply can't afford a lot of bureaucracy and red tape and a lot of business regulation if they're going to succeed. Um, 
similarly, if they're going to succeed, they understand that taxing capital income is very distorting to, to an economy. So Sweden's on schedule to reduce its corporate tax rate to 20% next year. Sanders wants to substantially increase the corporate tax rate to pay for a number of new social programs. Minimum wage, no minimum wage in Sweden. The Democratic Party almost across the board wants to push the minimum wage up to $15 per hour. Um, Medicare for all advocates in this country talk about having virtually no co-pays. You just go in for medical treatment. In Sweden and Denmark, there's substantial co-pays. People pay a lot for medical care in those countries in order to cover costs. In Sweden, if a government bureau wants to expand spending on a new program, they've got to find offsetting cuts. Imagine that idea here in the United States. So that's what Sweden and Denmark really are. They're remarkably different from the socialist paradises that AOC and Sanders believe they are. And this is very important because Sweden and Denmark are relatively successful economic countries. Uh, they have successful economies. They have high per capita income, high completion of, um, of college, a number of good outcomes on socio, uh, in the socioeconomic space. Um, they are confusing the outcomes in those countries with a set of policies that have not been in place for about 25 years. And again, to talk about the um, to talk about the importance of how dangerous socialism can be. In 1968, Sweden had the fourth best economy in the world. This was based on a very vigorous free market economy. Now, in the 1960s, that was a time when there's a lot of political unrest, Vietnam War. There was, uh, uh, like it is today, there was rebellion against the status quo. And the Swedish people voted in socialist government. And again, where socialism was couched within social issues, cultural issues, political issues, in addition to the economic issues. Well, ultimately, they became very unhappy that they, that they did that, because the Swedish economy fell from fourth in the world to 14th in the world very, very quickly. Government administered 70% of the economy. 70% of the economy. Private sector job loss in Sweden was equivalent to what would happen here as if we had lost 27 million private sector jobs. 27 million private sector job loss. That's, Sweden's a much smaller country, but that's the equivalent job loss that would have happened in Sweden. Now, by 1991, so about 23 years after Sweden started their socialist experiment, Swedish people, they were entirely fed up, and they voted in a reform government, and they continued to vote in reform governments. And since 1991, Sweden has grown faster than any other Western European economy. Now, I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal earlier this year um, exactly about this issue about socialism in Sweden and the mistaken concepts that many politicians have. 
about socialism and that then was then and now is now and today it's a free market economy and the social experiment was a disaster. And I received 19 emails from people, from Swedish people, who either were still living in Sweden at this time or had moved somewhere else, who wrote to me and said, thank you. Thank you for telling people that socialism was a disaster. I lived there at that time. Here, let me tell you about the lines we had to stand in at the grocery store. Let me tell you about how bad the phone service was. Let me tell you about et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I received 19 emails to this effect. Um, but for Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders and others, they perceive Northern Europe to be this, to be this socialist paradise. Those countries aren't doing well, and it's because they had economic reforms, and they were smart enough to get away from, from the socialist experiment. Now, within Congress, you've read probably a lot about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar. And I'm going to put up some of the quotes that they've said recently about our economic system. And, um, and they're factually wrong on almost all counts. I'll tell, you on, I'll tell you the one instance where they are right. But otherwise, they're, they're virtually wrong on all counts. And this is, again, the extent to which they have made a conclusion that socialism is the right economic system. Well, you know, their facts are virtually all wrong. This is an uninformed choice. And when we think about economic policies, we want to be having debates based on the best economic analysis, based on the best data, so we can make informed choices. Well, we can't even have that debate when people simply just don't even know what the facts are. And these are people who are involved with making economic policy at the highest level. So one quote is, capitalism is, is irredeemable, it's garbage. So that came from Ocasio-Cortez. Well, look at what's happened in the last 30 and 40 years. You call that garbage? Lifting half the world's people out of extreme poverty, is, is that garbage? And she said, U.S. was not capitalist, the birth of the country. Well, <laughs> I won't say anything more about that. Um, Rashida Tlaib, who is a, uh, a socialist uh, representative from Michigan, said, capitalism a, a form of power and oppression. Well, no, nothing is further from the truth. Capitalism is about freedom. It's about being free, about being able to make free choices about what to buy, about who to buy it from, about what to produce, about the occupation you choose. Capitalism is about freedom. It has nothing to do with oppression and power. My generation has never seen prosperity. Yeah. Hello? <laughs> Unemployment's the lowest it's been in 50 years. Um, wages are rising at the fastest rate in 35 years, but I guess that's not prosperity. Um, now, the one thing that they do get right People don't understand socialism. The post office is socialism. Yes, it is. <laughs> the post office is socialism. Your Honor, I rest my case. <laughs> Inequality. Now, in national surveys, when people are asked, what economic issue do you put at the top of the list, less than 2% put inequality at the top of the list. They care about their own economic well-being, not necessarily about the economic well-being of others. 
Um, but inequality is really the top of the list of those advancing socialist policies. Um, and here's a quote from Sanders. We will raise taxes to reduce the grotesque, and that's his, that's his term, grotesque inequality in this country. Well, in fact, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. has the highest level of tax progressivity in the world. What that means is the difference in the tax rate between the top and the bottom is highest in the U.S. In Sweden, it's almost flat. In the U.S., it's very, very high, much higher at the top end. Fact, U.S. redistributes a greater percent of income than any other country but France. And now if we compare ourselves to France, U.S. household consumption, based on statistics from the census, the bottom 10th percentile in terms of income in the United States, their consumption level is comparable to the median household in France. Okay, so we do, is that grotesque inequality? Uh, again, these are facts that Bernie Sanders, AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris just simply, simply just do not know. And again, before we make economic policy, we have a debate about what we should do based on the best economic analysis and the best data. We, we're not even at that level. Now, here are some Democratic candidates, and my colleague Bill Whalen, who, uh, who knows more about politics than anyone I know is going to talk about this in detail. But here's a set of, uh, of, I would say, leading Democratic candidates. And of those five, not really sure where Biden's going to end up standing, but certainly out of those five, the other four had, have either advanced or supported socialist policies. And here's what some of those policies are. Um, and they will be very, very expensive and or very, very uh, depressing for our economy. So AOC's Green New Deal. Well... Four of the five Democratic candidates have supported that. Medicare for all. And here I put Medicare for all in quotes because, as I'll mention in a minute, it is not Medicare as you may know it. It's going to be something very different, but it advertises Medicare for all to make it palatable. Elizabeth Warren has, had, uh, has put forward something called the Accountable Capitalism Act. Well, this is a law that, that is supposed to force corporations to make decisions in the public good, not just for their shareholders, in the public good, to benefit society at large, whatever that means. Um, higher corporate and top earner income taxes, $15 on a minimum wage, and perhaps even more important, ending right-to-work laws. Okay, right-to-work laws are those which simply tell a company you can't force your employees to join a union. That's all right-to-work means. You can't force a, a, a worker to join a union. Um, much higher business regulation, free, free college, uh, and taxing Wall Street securities transactions. So those are some of the policies that are being advocated. Let me just say a little bit about the, the Green New Deal. Well, uh, environmental issues are just one part of that. There are other parts such as if somebody doesn't want to work, we give them an income they can live on. Uh, if somebody does want to work, uh, well, that's great. We'll give them a good job, uh, no matter what. Well, the price tag has come out. It's hard to know what it is, but a lot of people come out about $100 trillion. Okay, how do we pay for that? Well, here's AOC's answer. Um, and uh, she went to Boston University. Uh, and um, it's, been, it's been reported in the media that she was an economics major. My friends teaching at BU are very quick to say, no, no, she majored in international relations. 
Uh, and you can see why they want to distance themselves. Her answer about paying for the Green New Deals, we must break the mistaken identity that taxes pay for 100% of government spending. Well, you know, um, I scratched my head and said, how do we do that? Um, to spend is to tax. That's, that's what economists always say. Her answer, I just print money. Keep on printing it. Isn't life grand? Print money. Just print money. Well, she doesn't... Well, many countries have tried that in the past and have achieved inflation rates that reach into the billions of percent per year that destroys the entire fabric of a country. And they don't even understand that inflation is a tax. Economics 101, you don't get something for nothing. Um, and again, they're not really at a level of economic understanding where they should even really be having opinions about some of these issues. Let me talk just a second about the dangers of Medicare for all. And again, I put this in quotes. Um, this would essentially take away private health insurance and replace it with one national health care system. That experiment has been tried in many European countries, and the results are very, very clear. Every national health care system severely rations care, including emergency room treatment and cancer treatment. In the UK, you're lucky. You're lucky if your cancer treatment starts within four months. You're lucky if it starts within four months. Medicare for all takes control of your health and limits your choices because there's a politically appointed bureau who will choose what will be covered and what won't be covered. Cataract surgery can mean the difference between blindness and having very good eyesight. In the world of surgery, it's pretty, it's pretty inexpensive, Ten, about $10,000 in this country to have both eyes done. It's often denied in the UK. So either, have, either you have the $10,000 to pay for it or you risk going blind. How about knee replacement? In Canada, the wait list can be 18 months. Well, the median age of a person getting a knee replacement is 67 years old, so 18 months represents roughly 10% of their remaining lifespan. Um, there's no magic that a government-appointed bureau can make better decisions and more efficient decisions on health care than private people. The government doesn't get to dodge budget constraints and incentives, and every piece of evidence we have is they do it a lot worse. And sadly, the people who socialists say that they advocate the most for lower-income people, they'll be the ones who are most affected. Higher-income people will be able to pay out of pocket, go to private doctors. Lower-income people won't be able to. They'll be the ones who are going blind because they don't get cataract surgery. So I'm just about done here, and I'm happy to open up for questions. Um, Elizabeth Warren has come out, and she has some really dangerous economic ideas, and this is one. The Accountable Capitalism Act requires corporations to benefit society. Well, ever since Adam Smith wrote his famous book, The Wealth of Nations, in that great year, 1776, economists have been preaching about the power of the market. That is, people's free choices inadvertently can, can have a wonderful impact on others. So I'm going to give you an example of just talking about the cell phone. Well, today's $1,000 cell phone, okay, as you take out your iPhone, take a look at it. It has the same computing processing power as a 1997 $66 million supercomputer that was being used at the, at the Defense Department and the National Weather Service. $66 million down to $1,000. 
The cell phone has revolutionized communications for 800 million Africans. Previously, with hardly any landline service, which was unreliable as well, Africans really had no way to communicate beyond 50 feet in which you could hear each other. And now they have sophisticated communication devices. Their lives are measurably better. Why is that? Because of capitalism and Apple's quest for profits. We don't need to legislate corporations to benefit society. They're already doing it right now. And in fact, in my estimation, Apple's done more for Africans than any government has or any nonprofit. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said recently, I worry about the perception that people have that the Democratic Party has gone completely off the rails. Well, after seeing these slides, you might, you might be ready to tell him, Joe, the, uh, it's not a perception. They, they have gone off the rails. Let me close by saying that a lot of the appeal of socialism today is about climate. So talking to young people, they're extremely concerned about climate. And I do some research in the area of climate economics. I don't have the background in terms of the science to have a firm opinion about what will happen. I'm not sure. I think the confidence interval about what will happen is somewhat wide. But Hoover's position has been, hey, this is a potential risk. Good economic policy is to insure yourself against risks. Why not insure ourselves? And George Schultz came up with the idea of a revenue-neutral carbon tax on which carbon emissions would be taxed, and the revenue from that would be given back to taxpayers. It's been signed on by 3,400 economists. Um, and we can, you know, this can form the blueprint for policies that reduce carbon and incentivize new technologies, and, and in my opinion, will be more effective than the mandates that are coming out of the socialist agenda, mandates that almost certainly will never be met. Um, now, what you don't hear from the left uh, about climate is the big issue is negotiating with China and India. We are responsible for about 13% of global carbon emissions, and this is a global issue. China and India produce about 35%. So that's really where a lot of the progress is going to have to come from. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.